Hello, Writing Life listeners. My name is Vicky, and I'm the Programme Officer at National Centre for Writing, based in Norwich, England's first UNESCO City of Literature. We're super excited to announce the launch of NCW Academy, our brand new home for creative writers at all stages of their writing journey. Whether you're just starting out putting pen to paper, or you're an experienced writer looking to take the next steps in your career, we can offer courses, workshops, mentoring, and a huge library of free resources that will support you to achieve your writing goals. As an added bonus, throughout August, we're running a special discount offer for anyone who books onto one of our online tutored writing courses designed in partnership with the University of East Anglia. While there are many online courses available to you across the world, ours are unique in offering one-to-one feedback on up to six assignments directly from your course tutor, plus expert resources developed by award-winning writers and industry experts. All you need to do is enter the code ACADEMY10 during checkout. That's all caps, ACADEMY, and then the number 10 during checkout. Visit nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk forward slash academy to find out more and to explore all of the courses and resources on offer. Your writing life starts here with NCW Academy. Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Steph McKenna from the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich UNESCO City of Literature. It's August 2023 and in this episode I'm here to bring you an insightful conversation with author, screenwriter and lecturer Tom Benn, whose latest novel Oxblood was long listed for the Gordon Byrne Prize and the CWA Gold Dagger Award. But before I hand things over to my colleague Chris, I'm delighted to welcome NCW Development Manager Dan Scales onto the podcast for the first time to say hello and to tell us about an important fundraising campaign to support Escalator, our programme for unpublished, underrepresented writers. Dan, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. I'm delighted to have you on. And you're here to talk about Escalator and a fundraising campaign we're running for this programme. So this is one of our longest running programmes. We've been running Escalator for something like 15 years. What is the programme exactly? Escalator is our flagship talent development scheme for emerging creative fiction writers from the east of England. Each year we aim to support up to 10 writers from across the region, which encompasses Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire, Hertfordshire, Essex, Norfolk and Suffolk. Throughout the programme, selected writers receive bespoke one-to-one mentoring from an experienced writer, as well as opportunities to connect with agents and publicists, and a series of masterclasses that focus on key skills such as pitching work, fundraising, and performing your work live for an audience. All of these things are really important for authors who are looking to build their brand and share their work with more people, whether that's within the publishing industry or through events with organisations such as the Centre for Writing. Escalator focuses on writers from underrepresented backgrounds in publishing. For example, those who identify as primary carers, writers who are D-deaf or disabled, those from a working class background, to name a few. In past years, we've had a specific focus of what type of writers we want to reach, whereas this year we're looking for applications from writers who identify as a whole range of different backgrounds and full details can be found on the website. So I've seen firsthand the amazing impact that a programme like Escalator can have, but can you tell us a bit about some of the writers that we have supported in the past and what Escalator has done to them? Absolutely. 
One such author is Margaret Meyer. She's based in Norwich and she has just published her debut novel, The Witching Tide, through an imprint of Hachette, a major publisher. Escalator gave her the space and the time to focus on this manuscript with expert insight from her mentor, as well as the skills and the opportunities to connect with Hachette, a major publisher. For many emerging authors, it's almost impossible to get noticed by a major publisher or even an independent without having access to agents and publicists themselves. Escalator gives writers this opportunity, notably through a showcase event, which we host at Dragon Hall with a simultaneous live stream each summer that's attended by figures from across the industry in the east of England and beyond. Another success story from Escalator is Michael Donker. He's a writer of Ghanaian descent who's now on his third novel. He's received loads of fantastic mainstream press from places like The Independent and The Guardian, and it's been a pleasure to see him act as an Escalator mentor himself. So he's come back to lend his experience of being a writer from this region and taking part in the programme to new cohorts of Escalator writers. And having mentors who have that lived experience and themselves recognise how difficult it is as an emerging writer is really important. So each year we try and get mentors from a range of diverse backgrounds with a diverse range of experiences who can really connect with and empathise with the writers that they support through the programme. Overall, we've seen a brilliant rate of publication from Escalator. We did a survey in 2022 looking at a whole range of Escalator cohorts from years gone by. As Steph said, it's been running for almost 15 years. And this survey found that over 50% of writers who've taken part have gone on to be published and nearly two thirds have won a literary award. So we're really, really proud of the programme. And quite simply, we know that it works. I hadn't realised that we had such a brilliant success rate of writers going on to publish work, actually. That's absolutely fantastic. And as you say, um, having mentors like Michael Donkor or um, Kate Worsley, who's also been a mentee on the scheme and is now a mentor, just goes to show how successful this scheme can be and how it goes on to help writers sort of with their first publication and beyond. We've run a fundraising campaign for Escalator in the past and we're running it again now for this coming year. Why are we running a fundraising campaign and asking the public to help us raise funds for this programme? So... Escalator is a really rich, engaging programme for writers. As we've said, it connects them with the mentors for the best part of a year, and it also provides masterclasses led by other experienced writers. At this particular time, as it always is, it's really, really important to ensure that writers are paid fairly for their time and making sure that the mentors get fair payment for the time that they commit to the programme is quite simply not cheap, but it is absolutely imperative. So Escalator is not a cheap program to run. As we know, funding from traditional sources, um, such as the Arts Council and local authorities, um, as well as private funders for arts organisations, is particularly stretched. And at the Centre for Writing, we're currently working really hard to open up Dragon Hall, our home in Norwich, to more visitors more of the time, which again is putting... A strain on our resources given the rising costs of running a heritage building such as Dragon Hall. So to ensure that we can continue delivering Escalator for a full cohort of eight to ten writers and provide them with the kind of rich experience which we know is so meaningful and impactful for authors, it's essential that we secure extra funds to sustain the programme both in this year and beyond. And there are lots of ways for listeners to get involved and support the campaign, isn't there? Can you tell us a bit about that? If you visit our website and navigate to the campaign page, which is 
www.nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk forward slash escalator dash campaign, you'll find more information about Escalator, links to case studies and the opportunity to donate. Every donation of any size makes a real difference to emerging authors from the east of England. What's more, this year, everyone who donates £5 or more will get a free gift screen print to celebrate their donation. These screen prints feature quotes from famous literary figures from Norwich's history, and they're all hand-printed right here in Norwich, UNESCO City of Literature. If you want to select a print, so there's a series of four, you can also go into our shop and buy A4 or A5 prints with 100% of the proceeds going directly to Escalator. There's also tote bags, as well as other NCW merch, which you can buy to support the campaign. Finally, we've made a campaign video, which you can find on our YouTube. I really encourage you to share this on socials, as getting the word out to other people who love literature is equally as important as donating, and will help spread the word of Escalator far and wide. The links to both the video and the campaign page will also be in the description of this podcast. Thanks so much, Dan. Escalator's a hugely beneficial program for unpublished writers, and we're so grateful to everyone who has supported it in the past and who will support it in the future. Applications for Escalator 2023-24 to are open to unpublished fiction writers in the east of England now. The deadline for applying is Tuesday the 19th of September. So to find out more, visit nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk forward slash escalator. And now on to the main segment of today's podcast, NCW Chief Executive Chris Gribble's chat with Tom Ben. Tom's first novel, The Dull Princess, was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize and the Portigo Prize, longlisted for CWA's John Creasy Dagger and was the Daily Mail's Book of the Week. His other novels are Chamber Music and Trouble Man. His fourth novel, Oxblood, which Tom describes as a story of three generations of mothers stuck in a haunted council house, was published in 2022. It was longlisted for the Gordon Byrne Prize and the CWA Gold Dagger Award. Tom also won the 2022 Sunday Times Charlotte Aitken Young Writer of the Year Award. In this interview, Tom speaks openly about the genesis of Oxblood and why it took six years for him to write. He talks about choosing to write a crime novel in a different way from a female perspective and his aim to resensitise the reader through dark or violent stories. He and Chris also discuss how publishers may react to a book like Oxblood, which sits within the crime genre but also interweaves elements of other genres. It's a really insightful chat for anyone interested in crime fiction, stories that weave the past with the present or the business of publishing. So now I'll hand over to Chris in conversation with Tom Ben. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the Writing Life podcast. Hi, Chris. Really good to be here. Really good. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you very much. Yeah, it's a cold day in Newcastle. I hope it's a bit sunnier and warmer in Norwich. It is for now. Yeah, so fingers crossed it stays. Let's keep our fingers crossed. So great to welcome you today. Um, Oxblood, your new novel, your fourth novel, is just going great guns, no pun intended out there in the, in the world of fiction. You've just won the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award. You've been on the, you are on the Gold Dagger um, shortlist. You were on the Gordon Byrne Prize longlist. It must feel like a bit of a dizzy time for you. Very dizzy, very strange, very surreal. I, I'm, I keep telling people I, I kind of oscillate between imposter syndrome where I feel like there's been some kind of cosmic accident. And then you have that horrible kind of author a vanity ego where you're like, finally, the world has recognized me um, about time. And then it kind of, 
uh, 10 seconds later, you flip back to imposter syndrome and you're just vaguely embarrassed. But it's a good problem to have. I don't want to sound churlish. So it's, it's, I'm just kind of just writing it. I feel like it's a, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing. And with my fourth novel as well, and it was a novel that took um, a very long time to write. So um, it feels kind of worth <laughs> it now. Um, so that's a nice thing to happen. You know, these, these things aren't guaranteed, are they? No, definitely not. When you've got writers like David Peace sort of saying that Oxford confirms that you're one of the most powerful and urgent writers of our time, it's got to be a, a moment to enjoy. Absolutely. And, you know, David Peace is a, um, a wonderful man, a wonderful writer. I was privileged enough to um, to do a book launch in Manchester with David Peace um, in April 2022. And, you know, his books are, are, you know, stylistically so interesting and they kind of cross all these boundaries of genre and they have they have this kind of great moral seriousness. And then when I, I met him, like this, he has this amazing, he's all of those things and more, but he's also has this really kind of gentle, warm, dry humor to him as well. He's also really kind of a, a funny and nice man. And it was just amazing to, to um, uh, you know, hear him talk about his writing and just to have a conversation about Oxford and his latest book. Um, so getting kind of plaudits from, from uh, people like David Peace, uh, yeah, just an amazing thing. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think meeting your heroes is always a bit of a tricky thing, but it sounds like it's a, with him, it was a really yeah, good experience. Yeah, absolutely. Again, something that's not guaranteed. So, um, yeah, but with, uh, but with Peace giving it uh, the cosign, as they say, yeah, I was uh, very chuffed with that. You've already mentioned, and we've already mentioned, that it, it's your first, no, it's your fourth novel, um, and that it took a long time to write. So we're immediately kind of in that territory where, you know, that sort of myth of writing a novel out of nowhere and suddenly kind of encountering amazing, overwhelming success without any obstacles, that's already shattered. <laughs> so do you want to, which is a good thing, do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of the the, the genesis of this novel and how long it, and why it took so long to write and where yeah, it came from? Yeah, I mean, I, it, I, there's no kind of, I suppose it will shatter any kind of romantic illusions about being able to just kind of write a novel very, very quickly. And then suddenly everybody tells you how wonderful it is and gives you a pat on the back with, with Oxblood, as I said, you know, in some ways, I was very lucky. I was published, my first novel was published when I was 24. I wrote it when I was 21, 22. And I know that is atypical and I was very lucky and I was young enough and innocent enough um, and lacking in emotional maturity at the time uh, to the point where I couldn't quite recognize how fortunate I was um, at that time. But with my fourth novel, um, uh, you know, many things happened. You know, I, I wrote those th first three novels kind of quite swiftly and innocently in my early 20s. But with Oxblood, um, as I as I kind of grew up and kind of got more kind of mired and complicit in real life, things slowed down. Um, and I took my time and I, I, you know, I attempted to use that to my advantage and kind of read more, read more widely and lived a bit. Um, and it just, I was kind of always kind of plugging away on this novel, which was, um, in my head was always a crime novel, like my first three books, but was, uh, wasn't going to be like a, a kind of male dominated hardball thriller. I, I wanted to kind of see that world from, um, from that, from a female perspective, to wonder what the the, the women, the mothers, uh, uh, and the and the wives and the daughters of these kind of career criminals who'd populated my earlier books, what they were getting up to um, when the men were out busy in jail or killing themselves or, or fighting over something, and obviously not being a great grandmother or a grandmother or a wife, you know that was a further reach. There was far more to go wrong. So I knew I needed to take my time with this. I needed to read more and live more. Um, and that was one of the reasons it took so long. I wasn't technically writing it for eight years. I was probably writing it for about six. 
but the, through various kind of circumstances, it took a long time. You know, it wasn't a book that anybody was kind of clamoring for. There wasn't a lot out there in the kind of publishing literary landscape that um, gatekeepers could point to and say, well, well, it's a bit like this, that broke through. We might well, might be able to take a chance on it. So I had to kind of, <laughs> it took a while for it to find its champion, for, for to find the right agent, the right editor. Um, there were a, a lot of no's, a lot of, you know, um, we'd like this, but it's not um, commercial enough or we don't think we can make enough money out of it, which is all these kind of considerations that um, when you when your work, when the writer kind of interfaces with a business and the publishing industry is a business, you kind of have to kind of deal with. But it's best, to, hopefully, it's best to put them aside when you're, um, you know, during the labour of the actual writing. But that was a big kind of wake-up call that, you know, I'd worked on something for a long time and there was no guarantee that it was ever going to see, 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 see the light of day. It was never going to be read by readers. So it's, I was very lucky, you know, that it's happened. Yeah, it's such a huge kind of question for writers that kind of the presumption of the readership and the audience and how you maintain kind of that uh, kind of thought or feeling throughout. You've, you've covered, I mean, there's so much to talk about in what you've just said. I, I don't want to lose kind of um, sight of that. The words you used were, you know, there was so much to go wrong uh, with this book, partly because of the perspectives and the characters. Did, did that sort of anxiety or that that kind of sense of responsibility, did it wear heavily on you? Um, not, I mean, implicitly, absolutely. I didn't worry. I mean, I knew I wanted to write a kind of, something that was going to be quite dark and kind of morally messy and implicatory, and that's not going to be for everyone. There's no guarantee of a broad readership with something like that. But in terms of like issues of kind of sensitivity, where I'm writing about a particular time and place in recent history, uh, and there's going to be certain language in, involved in that, that if I want to be kind of honest and truthful about, I need to kind of put on the page. And I know that that's going to be potentially insensitive for some readers uh, uh, and some gate, gatekeepers. I didn't worry too much about that initially. I thought, you know, however I approach this, you know, it will invariably upset somebody because it already upsets me which is the reason I'm writing about it in the first place. So I just, I, you know, I, I did what I try and tell my students, which is just kind of tell the truth and tell the truth carefully, you know, and try and say something about it that hasn't already been said and you know, notice what hitherto has gone unnoticed or gone unfelt or unspoken or unheard. And sometimes, you know, and looking at writers, like we just mentioned David Peace, you know, the, these were kind of lighthouses, you know, or compasses for me, you know, in terms of that way that they'd approached, you know, similar kind of uh, character context and circumstances and times and places. Um, And Marlon James is another writer whose, you know, work I really, really admire and I've been privileged enough to interview. Um, And he won the Booker, obviously, with his his crime novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings. Um, And he always says kind of violence should be violent, you know, and, you know, in terms about the, you know, the kind of the uh, emotional violence and psychic violence, psychological violence, not necessarily just people kind of uh, physically harming each other. And so sometimes with, you know, with with those things that could go wrong or could be you know potentially insensitive, you know what you're actually trying to do is kind of resensitize a reader to something that maybe for too long has been sanitized or romanticized. So it's it's there are so many kind of dimensions to it, and I and if I thought about it too hard, I think particularly during the drafting process, it would have paralyzed me. I think it would have taken another eight years on top of the eight years it took me to, to cross the finish line. <laughs> so I, I, I tried to listen to my own advice, the advice I give to my students, which is, you know, just kind of put the words down on the page carefully and in good faith and then worry about that stuff later. Yeah, well, it's a lovely kind of way of kind of phrasing it, that kind of the, the effort to resensitize people to those realities and the reality of that time and that place you you described the 
the novel yourself has uh, you summarised it as three generations of mothers stuck in a haunted council house. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about, about Oxblood and its world and why you sort of set out to make that sort of what you described as the margins into the whole world of the yeah, novel? Yeah, so, yeah. So basically Oxblood is, um, it's as I said, it's set in the kind of Manchester, <clears throat> the kind of underworld Manchester of my previous three novels, but it's absolutely a standalone. And it's uh, about three generations of mothers, literally a, a great-grandmother, a grandmother and a teenage mother. And they live together in this <laughs> council house in 1980s Manchester. And the, the men of the family were all these kind of underworld patriarchs, these terrible husbands <laughs> and, uh, and family members, periphery male family members who have all kind of died. Um, and the women are the ones left just kind of picking up the pieces. And they share this house with a a very, very cheerful, horny ghost who was the, who's the murdered lover of one of the women. Um, and he's <laughs> kind of the sanest, most kind of well-adjusted member of the household, but he just happens to be dead. I, I wanted to find a different way of telling a crime story, a way I'd, I'd kind of exhausted the limits of my abilities um, to tell a kind of hardballed crime thriller where there's a male protagonist who's kind of in this world who kind of is a kind of anti-hero uh, and a kind of quasi-amateur detective who's on a quest. I think there's 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 a lot that can still be done with that mold. It's not been exhausted. You know, when I was when I was writing those novels, I was very much in thrall of um, you know writers like Ted Ted Lewis who wrote Get Carter, and you know in, in America writers like Chester Himes who'd done something really interesting mm-hmm. and absurdist with a, from a kind of blackmail perspective with his Harlem police procedurals and. Uh, I think there are there are contemporary writers now who are who have done amazing things in that in that mode that subgenre like um, you know uh, Colson Whitehead with his uh, Harlem Shuffle novels has really re-energized these kind of quite male hardball crime narratives and also Percival Everett I suppose with um with the trees which very much mines that terrain and territory mm. but all, that was kind of beyond me I could I'd kind of written myself into a kind of uh, cul-de-sac I I didn't I couldn't figure out a way to kind of keep telling those stories in a way that was kind of interesting and challenging and um, uh, and, and felt worthwhile. And my interest, as I said, was just kind of leading to the margins of those stories, the stories I'd been telling, and the, the characters in, in those in those worlds that I'd been dimiss- kind of dismissive uh, and dismissing. And I wanted to just kind of shift the spotlight and see if I could build an entire novel around around those perspectives that are just kind of orbiting these kind of uh, monstrous male figures. And what happens when they just become dead stars and they're just left in this or- orbit? Mm-hmm. What do they do? And so I kind of had to, I, I had to kind of cast my net widely in terms of my reading. And I looked back to, to um, you know, pioneering 60s novelists uh, on this side of the Atlantic, people like uh, Nell Dunn uh, with Poor Cow and Up the Junction, who have these kind of, you know, female perspectives on the margins of kind of career criminal male figures who can, and they who kind of shift in and out. And I wanted to see if I could kind of update that or do something with that or do justice to that. Pat Barker is another, um, another writer who's, you know, work, particularly her early novels, uh, her kind of linked short story collection, uh, which is set in your neck of the woods, um, Chris, you know, in the Northeast U- union street is a fantastic kind of novel and mm, stories. Yeah. That, um, is always kind of brushing up against the crime genre. And then particularly, um, her early '80s novel uh, "Blow Your House Down," which is a, a serial killer novel, it was written in kind of kind of righteous anger, angry response to the 
to the uh, uh, Yorkshire Ripper, you know, the, the climate of the Yorkshire Ripper uh, and the kind of the media and the general public's kind of response to the victim pool and how, the, how those women were treated, whether they were sex workers or, or weren't sex workers. Um, and that kind of that anger kind of fuels Barker's novel, you know, and it's from very much from the perspective of, uh, of the victims of, of sexual violence and, 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 um, and, and murder in a, in, a, in a kind of industrial, declining industrial northern town. Uh, but we also, she kind of morally complicates it. You know, she gives us the, the killer's perspective as well. And I thought that was really, really interesting. I knew with Oxblood, I, I, I didn't want a male perspective in the novel at all. But I wanted some of what Barker achieves in terms of her um, that murky moral perspective where she's always implicating the reader. There are no easy, perfect victims here. Everybody's kind of complicit yeah. in their own oppression in a way that um, kind of complicates things, but in a way that we can understand how this has happened and why this has happened. And I, I, you know, I, I don't claim to, you know, um, to, to, to have got there, you know, uh, uh, you know, but um, these, these were in terms of inspirations. This is uh, the ter- territory I knew I wanted to mine with my fourth novel and it, and it was new terrain for me. Fantastic. I think there's also a really um, interesting class aspect to those references that you've just mentioned. You know, I think of Get Carter or Poor Cow and Blow Your House Down. It's a really interesting social and, and kind of cultural class intersection there as well were you very aware of that when you were kind of creating your universe or recreating your universe yeah i mean those writers aren't writing kind of middle class london cosmopolitan novels where or you know that the the kind of drawing room heritage or lineage of the of the british or english literary novel are they they're 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 writing from a kind of marginal perspective in terms of region in terms of class as you say um and that these were the books that spoke to me you know i I, you know, I was very much the first in my family to go to university. Um, I was very much encouraged to read and write, um, but it wasn't, so it wasn't a kind of guarantee. You know, I, I didn't grow up in a house full of books. You know, I'm very, very envious of, um, uh, uh, you know, of writers who had that from the beginning. You know, uh, I was kind of fortunate enough to have a, a you know, a mum who um, took me to the library every week. Um, and, you know, that fostered an interest in writing. Mm-hmm. But my, my kind of <laughs> my kind of literary tutor tutorage uh, or tutelage was the other way around. You know, I didn't. You know, I didn't kind of approach the English canon. Uh, you know, straight away, it was no kind of guarantee for me. I got to um, I got to university. You know, because I, and did an English lit degree because I loved reading and I loved writing. But there was so much of the canon that I hadn't even heard of. You know, I never, <laughs> I hadn't even been you know read Wordsworth because it happened not to be on my my uh, state school curriculum. You know. Uh, and so I kind of gravitated towards uh, kind of graphic novels and representations of um, of kind of contemporary or recent past English life that I could recognize, which was tended to be more kind of diverse or working class or regional. Um, and that was kind of my way into, into mm-hmm. you know, into these, diff- these kind of literary canons uh, and alternate literary canons. Um, and so I kind of, I read, you know, Andrew Cowan's book, Pig, his debut novel. And now obviously um, I was taught by him and now I, I, I'm yeah. uh, privileged enough to to be his colleague at uh, the University of East Anglia in the creative writing department, and that led me on to the kind of the 50s and 60s angry young male novelists and their kind of female counterpart like Nell Dunn, uh, uh, and all the all those kind of English novels that are about um, the margins and and kind of characters falling through the cracks uh, and kind of climbing up and down the the social ladder, and that was really really interesting to me and. Uh, and and the way that it kind of brushes up against different genres as well, even though 
the canon has decided that it belongs in a certain kind of class or field of writing, when you when you go back and read it in a different context, in a you know fifty years later, sixty, seventy years later, you realise, oh, actually, this is this is crime, or this is magical realism, or this is there's a kind of sci-fi or fantasy mm. element to me, and all of that kind of genre gatekeeping kind of starts to dissolve and break down, and that was interesting to me, and that was something I knew I wanted to um, incorporate in my own writing. I wanted to kind of um, uh, trespass on lots of different kind of genres and traditions and see if I could bring them together in a way that um, <laughs> did, wasn't you know, self-defeating or undermining. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly what I was kind of coming to next, really. It was just, uh, and I'd wondered if that sort of not being trammeled by kind of whatever constitutes a, a classical or a traditional or a canonical education, which, uh, whether that enabled you to kind of range across genres and pick what suited or what your stories or what your worlds needed. It's not often that you find a horny ghost in the middle of a uh, realist crime novel. Absolutely not. Yeah, and that's a really good question and a good observation. I, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe uh, subconsciously. It wasn't self-conscious, but you, I guess... I guess with my kind of route into this, I was trespassing without real recognizing I was trespassing. I was innocently trespassing. And so you stumble on things out of their pre or prescribed contexts or canons. And so they're, they're there without the labels. You know, I, I kind of stumbled into, uh, I'm a big kind of Faulkner fan, a folk nerd, as was sometimes called on the internet, tragically. <laughs> <laughs> I approached William Faulkner without realizing that he had this kind of difficult reputation as a kind of highbrow modernist, you know, who writes in these kind of, um, you know, ab abstruse stream of consciousnesses. To me, it was just kind of amazing blood and thunder soap operas that were absolutely crime fiction, that were hyper specific in terms of kind of working in underclass rural communities that yeah. he'd kind of gifted or given them the freedom to kind of express the kind of complexity of their lives and consciousnesses with any kind of means necessary, you know, whether it's kind of, you know, looking back to the 18th or 17th century English canon or it's um, hyper-specific, you know, regional, provincial terms, however kind of toxic or um, problematic they were at the time, you know, that there's an honesty and a truth to just kind of representing the high and low of all these registers um, for these perspectives in this place and time. And this was amazing to me. And the stories are just kind of like amazing kind of violent uh, melodramas and soap operas and Southern Gothic fiction was so good to me. And the fact that I had, uh, I'd kind of stumbled on it in libraries rather than being told that I had, it was going to be very difficult. And there were all these allusions to various canons that I wouldn't recognize, I think was very beneficial to be reading William Faulkner as a kind of crime writer to me. And which he very much was, you know, he was a writer who would, um, you know, submit um, short stories to the Ellery Queen, you know, uh, crime mystery uh, competitions and stuff. And he read a lot of Simenon, but um, these are the things that are often kind of excised out of, um, uh, you know, kind of Faulkner literary or, you know, academic discourse. So just stumbling on that as a teenager and in my early 20s was amazing. And it allowed me to kind of incorporate some of that sensibility and some of that, that kind of recklessness and the way it kind of transgresses in all kinds of different ways that was something I wanted to appropriate, you know, um, and see if I could, if I could tell a story about the kind of the places and people I recognized with, with, the, with that similar kind of freedom. Um, and again, that's not to compare my meager literary output to somebody like William Faulkner or Pat Barker. It's simply, uh, these are the things that were just kind of really inspirational to me. Um, when I was, um, figuring out who, who I was as a writer and how I wanted to write and why I wanted to write in the way I wanted to write. 
Well, I think it really comes through that, particularly that sort of the really rich world and detailed inner lives that you conjure of these characters of this household of this time but also within a context within within Manchester within South Manchester which is a very particular uh, kind of storied city landscape as well you you described um kind of in answer to a question I think uh, about the ghost character you said that the dead don't haunt the living it's the living who haunt the dead can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between the living characters and 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 the and the ghost in yeah Oxford? I think that sounds good but it's probably a bit specious I, I kind of like I was probably I'm not sure if I can <laughs> if I can actually justify that but I think in terms what I what I was trying to get at was that like in that the this idea that the dead don't haunt us we haunt us we haunt them is like we carry these kind of heirlooms we like every house is a haunted is a haunted attic really isn't it where we we carry these kind of memories and traumas with us and yeah. they and they they have a kind of material effect on us and who we are you know and how we kind of work in the world and how how we feel when somebody is kind of triggered by something there's a kind of fresh of emotion and it's a response to this past experience that's haunting us and that seemed like a more truthful way to kind of get at what the characters what the what carol you know the the, the character in uh, in oxblood has, has been through and how she and and why she's you know why she's so dysfunctional why her relationship with her own daughter and her own mother-in-law is so dysfunctional because of these kind of violent ruptures in her life and to have that kind of manifest in in, in oxford mm-hmm. as a, a literal haunting that there's this character in her bed and she talks to and he's you know there's a kind of therapeutic and cathartic element to it and there's a way to kind of offset offset some of the kind of uh, the heaviness and the tragedy by making it funny and hopefully sexy and romantic and there's this kind of sensuality to it but it's very kind of concrete and material it's just it's just this kind of nerdy bloke who's there and she's someone that she loves and can't let go for better and mostly for worse that that felt mm-hmm. to me more realistic than a social realist approach i think it, you know acknowledging the kind of absurdity of the fact that we we have these things and they're just kind of locked in our heads and we can use therapy and conversation and literature and art to kind of help excise those ghosts in some way but they, we can never truly release them we just have to kind of um, absorb them and live with them um, and that, for me that's kind of what genre is for you can kind mm. of manifest that and express it literally and have fun with that and hopefully say something truthful about that you know or just in its approach you know rather than having her looking at a picture and feeling sad that's I don't know if that would make a very interesting novel for readers it certainly wouldn't be an interesting one for me but having <laughs> someone literally there haunting this house felt felt fun yeah. that felt that and it felt more true yeah, well, it's funny. Funny you should say what you did because I, I was sort of thinking about how else you could have, a, you might have gone about that, uh, and and therapy kind of was the one thing that came to mind. But that just wouldn't have been right for this novel. You couldn't have had scenes with a therapist in this novel. It wouldn't have worked on any level. So it just feels like a really inspired way of of enabling her to have this ongoing dialogue. You, you've just sort of talked a little bit about um, that kind of the questioning of what genre can do uh, and how it can kind of interrogate kind of the past in order to help you kind of look forward as well. You know, I read also that Oxblood was rejected by a number of publishers over a period of time. Do you think the kind of the, the genre issue or the, or the genre the genre architecture that you use confused publishers or, or what was it that that kind of that took it 
made it take so long to find a home? I think lots of reasons. I think, you know, that sense, the, the a kind of a sensible acquisitions team at a major publishing house that's, you know, looking at its bottom line will look at a book like Oxford and, 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 be you know which is absolutely fair play in their right and looking at it and thinking where does this fit on a shelf will it be easy to sell you know is it a crime novel is it too literary is it something else is it a historical novel and some of those things might be when you're looking at uh, at novels as a as a as a product to be sold you know it, it it maybe it's a harder sell and and the fact that it is um kind of brushing against various different genres and maybe um and having fun with them Rather than committing to something in a you know current contemporary market definitions of this is a crime novel, this is a historical novel, this is a romance novel, etc., probably made it harder to sell. You know, it took a publisher who were maybe a, a bit riskier or a bit braver, a bit braver rather, to take a chance on it and think, you know, maybe there's a way forward where we can you know take this you know and and, and get people reading it, and then they can decide. Which I'm very grateful for. There's no, no, you know, there's no guarantee. There's definitely a universe out there where Oxford, you know, fell at that last hurdle. You know, so I'm grateful to be in this universe where, um, you know, a, you know, a major publisher saw something in it and thought, yeah, this is this this will appeal to certain crime readers, will appeal to certain literary readers or people who like, you know, you know, kind of engaging with the past in a way that's kind of in conversation with the present. Um, but yeah, it's I, I think. I think genres are always on a continuum as well. They're always evolving. So I'm always suspicious of contemporary definitions of what is or isn't a crime novel because we're always taking writers uh, and, and texts yeah. out of a certain box. We've put them in for five minutes or 50 years and then putting, putting them in another box, you know, you know, turn, turning them into kind of canonical writers. I, I always kind of, I give my students the, um, uh, the Auden essay, The Guilty Vicarage, where he talks about you know, what is and isn't crime fiction and the English kind of the uh, mystery novel that, or, you know, mystery story that he's obsessed with. And he's very, very dismissive yeah. of Raymond Chandler, who was, you know, yeah. alive at the time. And, you know, the, the Philip Marlowe, um, you know, LA novels. And he's saying whatever Raymond Chandler is, you know, he's certainly not a crime writer, which is something that seems laughable to us now, because obviously he's kind of been canonized and he was just working in a different uh, you know, a, a different lane in, in, in under the kind of to mix my metaphors, the kind of the broad, the broad umbrella of crime fiction. So you know, we're always kind of evolving. You know, and uh, I'm not comparing my own work to Chandler, but um, you know, maybe you know, in another five or ten years, this would be considered. This can be considered. Oh yeah, this is a this is working in a very obvious terrain, in you know, in in, in the crime novel. And to me, it is it is still genre fiction. Um, you know, I mean, slightly kind of yeah. digressing from from your question, but you know how the literary landscape and the cultural landscape in general is is often fetishizing youth. We have like you know best young directors, best young artists, and best young novelists. You know, Granta just came out with his yeah, uh, yeah. you know best young British British novelists. Um, I think, yeah, and you know, there is there's a kind of a, some often a kind of backlash to that, but um, I think it's I think it's useful and and kind of. In certain contexts, it's kind of contextual. You know, uh, I'm very, very grateful that you know the other week the the Crime Writers Association, the CWA, as you mentioned, you know, um, nominated um, Oxblood as for their for their Gold Dagger for, for for best crime novel. And to me, that's you know that's such an honour because you know the, the, you know the judges may well have you know would have been well in their right to see look at a novel like Oxblood and say is this crime enough for us? And if they said no, that's that's fine. But to kind of recognise mm -hmm. it as working in certain kind of um, traditions in the crime novel and doing something maybe slightly different with it, um, whether or not successfully or not is not for me to decide. That's for readers and literary judges to decide. But that, you know, it's amazing for them to honour that. And, you know, 
organizations like that, you know, I think the CWA is celebrating its 70th anniversary this year, you know, so it really needs to be looking at what writers yeah. in their 20s and 30s are doing with uh, and to the genre of crime writing. You know, and there are some amazing kind of crime writers to me in their 20s and 30s who may not necessarily be always be being published or marketed as crime writers. Um, you know, Eliza Clark, you know, uh, she's got mm. a, a second novel coming out um, in the summer, uh, Penance, and it's like indisputably a crime novel to me, whether or not its publisher decides to kind of market it, you know, chiefly as a crime novel. But it's very much in conversation, you know, its generational touchstones may be slightly different because she's in her in her 20s. But it's, you know, it's talking about, you know, the kind of the true crime podcast era, um, and kind of, um, you know, uh, teenagers and yeah. people in their, young, in their 20s who've grown up with the internet and how that kind of affects kind of bullying and, 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 and violence that kind of has a real world tangible effect. It's totally a crime novel, you know, engaging with crime in the here and now. And I think the CWA in their, in their Dagger Awards have uh, nominated a, a US writer called Dania Kukafka. She's also in her, in her 20s, I think. Um, an amazing, amazing writer. She's, you know, her second novel came out last year called Notes on an Execution. And it's really pushing, you know, the serial killer genre in a very new direction, um, you know, and it's, it's kind of looking to the kind of the future of the genre. And I think that's that's really, really important. And it just shows you that, you know, these things are, uh, are you know, genres are unstable things. They're constantly kind of shifting and mutating, um, looking backwards and looking forwards. Uh, but that was a long ranty answer. I'll shut up now. <laughs> no, no, it's fascinating. And it also, it's a great reading list source as well. So <laughs> I'm just making notes as I go. But I do think it's, I think it's fascinating how kind of publishing as a business, you know, and you've already kind of been really kind of clear about how it is a business and how there are acquisition teams and how there are marketing constraints, how they themselves butt up against and sometimes uncomfortably with ideas of genre and what and whether literary fiction itself counts as a genre and whether a publisher would want to market a literary fiction person, you know, like Eliza, I think, was on the um, Granter list mm -hmm. as well. Which um, is brilliant. And, it's absolutely brilliant. Would, would, would they want to market her as a crime? It is brilliant, but will they choose to market her as crime as well? It's going to be interesting to see how they negotiate their own, their, their own limitations in what they take to market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of that is fascinating to me. And it's, it's sometimes yeah. decided not in the here and now. We're just kind of, we're living in it. We're too kind of myopic. You know, these things like what is or isn't a crime novel or yeah. is a sci-fi novel or fantasy or or something beyond that, something that transcends the kind of genre ghetto, for better or worse, is decided by the next generation of readers when those books kind of either are still in print or get reprinted. Um, but it just, it reminds you that you're always kind of working in this kind of grand matrix, this on this long continuum, in in these kind of traditions that you might be only kind of implicitly yeah. aware of, and to me that's really interesting. You know, these 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 there is no kind of one dominant canon. There's no kind of somebody grandly deciding what is or isn't working. And, and even if they are, they can be proven wrong. You know, readers decide ultimately. <laughs> Absolutely. In the long run, that's so true. You, you mentioned a couple of times kind of um, both your students and also kind of teaching uh, uh, crime writers alongside other writers in your work. Can you talk a little bit about kind of perhaps what you've learned about yourself as a writer as a result of being a teacher of writing as well? I think a lot of people are really fascinated by writers, practicing writers who also teach writing and how they balance the two sure, things. Yeah. So I, I, I co-founded the um, MA in Crime Writing in 2015, 2016, I think, with um, uh, my colleague, uh, Henry Sutton, who's also a crime writer. He writes crime fiction sometimes under the pseudonym Harry Brett. He's a brilliant writer, brilliant teacher. I'm also teaching currently with um, uh, Nathan Ashman, who's a, a crime scholar, crime critic. Um, 
uh, and we have various uh, visiting writers all the time. I'd love to be called a crime, being called a crime scholar. Very, very grand, and Nathan lives up to that and more. Absolutely, Um, and it's it's a it's a part time low low residency course where we have lots of international students, kind of local, national, international, and they they write a crime novel every two years, and it's brilliant. And they're very very conversant with the genre and the traditions, uh, often more conversant than with it than I am. and I, but I also teach on the creative writing prose on, on sometimes on elective modules where I'm teaching crime writing to students who are less um, kind of conversant with the genre or more, slightly more skeptical about or have kind of more rigid definitions or assumptions about what is or isn't genre fiction. And that's very, very different. And, so, and it's, sometimes it's, there's an amazing pleasure in, you know, um, starting in week one with students who... Um, Maybe, you know, their idea of a crime novel is it can only be Agatha Christie or only a police procedure. And then by week 10, you know, I've turned them to crime and that's enormously rewarding. And, you know, we're looking at, you know, (laughs) all kinds of, um, uh, you know, kind of subversive fiction that's kind of mining and vandalizing genre fiction. And they're kind of producing it and creating it. And sometimes, you know, quite often now go on to kind of publish novels that are engaging with genre in that way. And that's wonderful. But it's also it's also wonderful to teach um, on the crime writing uh, masters where you've got students who all have very, very different ideas of what a, a crime novel is or can be or should be. And they're all working on really, really distinctive projects. And then just kind of seeing those uh, over the finish line, or at least the, the initial finish line of kind of getting to the end of something, which can be very difficult um, to sustain in the real world when you're you know, you've got a full-time or a part-time job or you're kind of struggling with childcare, but to kind of get to the end of a novel um, in two years, and we almost always manage it with our students. Um, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of them get get published as well. You know, uh, we've had about, <coughs> excuse me, we've had about yeah. two dozen secure publications since 2017, which is, seems like um, we only have a an intake usually of between kind of 12 or 14 every year, Um and so that's that's fantastic, you know, yeah. we, and that's a testament to the quality of the students, if anything. Um, and and they're, they're kind of pushing the genre forward always, you know, looking back to kind of look to to, to kind of look forward. Um, and and that and, and that's brilliant. And in terms of how that kind of um, affects my writing or my idea of myself as a writer, if that makes any sense, um, I think it's good. It slows me down um, in a way that I don't resent. I think because you're constantly being challenged, you're constantly having to refine your positions. Whether I'm whether I'm kind of teaching a published text, whether it's a noir novel from the 1940s by Dorothy B. Hughes, uh, and I'm saying like you know this is a, a serial killer novel, you know it's it's a, it's a woman from the 1940s writing from the perspective of a male serial um, sex attacker uh, and murderer. What do we do with that? How does that kind of complicate our moral response to this text? And I'll have you know um, you know really really interesting intelligent students r- readers and writers who will you know kind of bring their own responses to what what's on the page and now they will challenge my own and uh, and you know we'll have interesting conversations about that and then the, the the work that they they produce in response to that and the work that I'm kind of reading and writing will 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 be affected by those conversations we have in the seminar and the work that they produce so so it's very dynamic so I'm constantly having to kind of refine my positions um, in a way that I find useful. It, 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 as I said, it slows me down and makes me think harder about what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, and why I'm doing it this way and, and, and not another way. Which, you know, and those kind of what's, hows, and whys are something I'm always mm. kind of banging on about with my students. Um, you know, kind of testing it for kind of vulnerabilities and weaknesses and, and, and bits where you, you haven't really thought about it. Um, and, and just, yeah, and, and, and embracing that. You know, it's, it, it's gotta be, teaching has got to be a kind of 
the classroom is always a safe space and that works both ways you know it's a safe space to um to get things wrong as well to stumble to not ha- have all the answers yet uh, and and to be forgiven for that to you know because you're going to get there and everyone in that room mm-hmm. wants you to get there even if you, that destination is going to be different to another student's destination um and and attempting to kind of foster that environment starts with the students as well yeah, um and I'm very fortunate to have some really really great students every year mm. I, I, you've you've taught for uh, NCW and uh, the Creative Writing Online program as well, in partnership with UEA in the past. Before, do you do you take away kind of really? Yeah, do you t- do you take away useful things from your students? I don't, I don't mean kind of creatively stealing their ideas. <laughs> of course, I don't. But I mean the, the kind of from the relationship <laughs> that you develop with them. Yeah, absolutely. There is a. I mean, there's obviously you know there's a, a kind of professional barrier, but there isn't kind of intimacy involved and a vulnerability involved in somebody sharing some work in progress or, or always and there's a there's a kind of responsibility and a respect there and I think that's important and there's an element of diplomacy as well because you're talking about something that isn't fixed and you're mm-hmm. not not in a cynical sense but you're you're looking for problems you're looking for weaknesses and vulnerabilities and and workings out and scaffolding that you can take down and ways that things can be developed and that's you know, that's not easy. You know, it's not easy to, to learn how to say that another student to criticize a constructively another piece of work and, and for a, a tutor to kind of criti- criticize a student who's already kind of um, been brave enough to, to share something they're working on, something personal. And I, I, I think, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a good thing to be in that environment and kind of to, to kind of stumble your way through and, and learn how to, con- you know, constructively help somebody get to where they want to go. Or get the work where you know where it needs to be. Yeah, it, I think it's such a fascinating uh, kind of relationship that whether it's a physical or a virtual sort of workshop space where a writer is talking to other writers at earlier stages of their career and kind of exploring what it is they're trying to create together, it, it can be an immensely rich experience as well as quite challenging. I agree. Yeah, I think at its best, it's galvanizing, isn't it? You know, it's not competitive or or toxic. You want to make sure that it's always kind of galvanizing and that it kind of you build a fire and it sustains itself. And there is a momentum where you've got a group of people in the in in the room, virtual or otherwise, who want to help each other get to where they're going. And they're all individually might be writing very different projects that have very different mm. audiences, but they're all trying to help each other get there. And I think that that level of kind of posi- posi- you know possibility and positivity is uh is really important and, and it takes the writer away from just the kind of isolation of just working on something with no you know no kind of connections to other writers or readers or the world it reminds you that you're you're ultimately writing for a reader it may not necessarily be your ideal reader might not be in that room of 10 or 12 people but those people might all, will help you find that reader they'll help you figure out who that reader is if you're not sure and it may just be you, but it may just start with you. But those kind of questions, yeah. you need other people to help you answer, even if they're not going to supply the answer explicitly um, or literally. Having that conversation with other people in a room will help you get there, I think. I think it's very nourishing and rewarding. Also challenging, yeah. as you said, but in, a, in the best possible way. I think that's a, a really great description of kind of... of that how that learning environment can operate thank you um i want to take you back to kind of um a little bit to where we started you know you mentioned that you in your early 20s you wrote three novels in three or four years from a from a place of innocence 
and then and then it took you six six or eight years to to write your next novel for it with a very different process involved which which right which of those two writers do you think you'll be in future or will it be a, a hybrid <laughs> i think for me i think it always gets harder because you're you're always getting less progressively less innocent you know more right and so you know you know your own weaknesses and limitations mm-hmm. as you as as you as you get older for me I'm very, very envious of writers who, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily take as much out of them or a different part of them, and they can just kind of produce a novel a year or every nine months or whatever. I, I mean, I'd love to be that kind of writer. And like even, you know, the, tradi- the kind of genre tradition, the pulp tradition of the 1940s and 50s and 60s of writers who were producing, you know, practically a short novel a month, you know, Simonon or Earl Stanley Gardner, who created the Perry Mason mysteries, you know, writers who had full-time jobs and were producing 100,000 words a month, you know, it just kind of blows my mind. So the, the extreme end and also the more kind of regular commercial end of novelists who kind of manage to comfortably produce a novel a year, I'm, I'm, I, I have enormous admiration for them, but I don't think I'll ever be that anymore. I think it was a, a, I was in a particular time, place, circumstances that allowed me to produce fiction very quickly while I was working part time. And I wasn't reading nearly enough. And the novels, um, uh, you know, would, would have been better if I'd taken my time. You know, there's, there's certain things I... I you know, I, I, I find it hard to anyway to kind of read my own writing. <laughs> you know, I, novels are just a kind of eventually abandoned for me, you know, for sanity's <laughs> sake. And there are things, but there are things that it's a version of me that I don't, you know, that I forgive, you know, it's a younger version of me, a more innocent version of me. And those books had something. And I still have people who come up to me, you know, readers who really got something out of those books. I think that's a wonderful privilege, you know, but it's, they're not books I could write now. I'm, I'm older. I know I, I'm a different person. It's a, it's a different Tom Ben. Um, so, it, you know, even going back and sort of reading it, if I yeah. had to do a kind of lecture or seminar on, on my own kind of writing processes, it, it does feel like a kind of a, an alien experience. It doesn't feel like I'm the same person who wrote that. And obviously that's because that's true. I'm not the same person. It was 10 years ago or whatever. Um, but I, I'd like, I'd, you know, at the very least, I'd like my next book not to take another eight years. <laughs> I'd like to get to the finish line a bit, a bit quicker than that. Well, I mean, you know, the life cycle of Oxblood is still in, it, you know, running its course because the paperback, I think, is just through now. Yes, is that right? yeah. So that, um, to kind of capitalise on the momentum of the the Sunday Times Young Writer of the of the Year win, the publishers um, brought the paperback release forward a few weeks. Um, so that that came out, I think, last week. Um, so yeah, that's available in all good bookstores, etc. <laughs> And you're going to be talking about that over the next few months, I think, and over the next year in terms of literary festivals and events, I'm sure. But I presume you're working on something new. Anything you can tell us about that? I'll do my best. I've had something on the back burner for a, for a couple of years. I think, you know, like a lot of writers, you're kind of cheating on projects, one and the other, with, with another project. Uh, <laughs> and now I have kind of... Being unfaithful. Yes, yeah. Being unfaithful. It's good to be unfaithful as a writer, being unfaithful to your characters and your ideas and your projects sometimes. You know, particularly, I'm always saying to students, like, if you, it's good to draft a plot outline, but it's also good to be unfaithful to it. There's no need for strict fidelity. But sorry, I'm getting off the subject. Yeah, the, in terms of the, <laughs> the, the, the new novel, um, it is it's a kind of set in a kind of crime world again, but it's slightly more experimental. It's a little bit shorter. It's about um, a nightclub in in Manchester that's accessible to um, the ghosts of murdered women of the North. And so it's kind of takes, a, it takes various different kind of forms. Um, there's a lot about kind of music and dancing in it. Uh, it's still quite embryonic in some ways. So I've no idea really where I'm going or what I'm doing with it, but that's, that's the kind of terrain I'm mining again. And I'm doing a kind of a lot of research with it, uh, and and seeing seeing where it goes, 
So it, 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 it may it may take a while, but hopefully not another eight years, as I said. I don't want it to be another Oxbud. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Tom. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I'm going to go away. Amongst other things, I'm going to go away and find a copy of Pat Barker's Blow Your House Down, because I don't think I have read that, and it sounds fascinating. It's been just great to get to hear kind of about some of your inspirations and and your experience and uh thank you for kind of oxblood and uh here's to the next shorter time span taking novel thank you it's been an absolute pleasure just quickly before we go can i have two very brief shameless plugs you can indeed you'd be very welcome to could i uh could i plug the noirich crime writing festival which is returning for its 10th year um in september uh, September 8th and September 9th. The festival lineup hasn't been announced yet, but it probably will have been announced by the time this goes out. Uh, but it's a really special lineup. As I said, it's our anniversary year. Um, so we're looking at where the crime novel is going and the future where it is now. Um, so that should be that should be really interesting. Everybody needs to go to Norwich this year if you're listening and you're in Norfolk, East Anglia. And also, uh, very quickly, UEA, um, University of East Anglia's publishing house, Boiler House Press, will be publishing its first crime novel this year. Um, I think it's in the summer. Uh, it's Quarry by Jane White, which is this lost classic of the 1960s. It's written by an author with local Norfolk connections, I believe. It's about teenage boys who kidnap another boy. It's this kind of dark psychological thriller. Very, very modern in many ways. It's a plot that I'm kind of seeing echoes of in crime novels, that, new crime novels that I published this year. So everybody needs to look out for that. And there may well be more crime novels being published by UEA's press in the future. So something else to look out for. Right, that, that's it. I'm done, I promise. That's, no, that's brilliant. Thank you for both of those. Yeah, the Noirich um, announcement will come out in the next couple of weeks, uh, which will probably, as you say, be, be well before this is broadcast, but I can't recommend it enough. There's some fantastic events coming up, I know. And Tom, thank you again for talking to us today. Pleasure. Cheers again. Bye. A big thank you to Tom for his time. And make sure to pick up a copy of Oxblood from your local independent bookshop. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us at Writers Centre on Twitter and Instagram. We're on Facebook and you can sign up to our weekly newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation on the website by going to the Support Us page today. Make sure to subscribe to The Writing Life and check out our huge back catalogue of episodes. And please do leave us a review because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and I'll catch you on the next episode.